This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Well, there are a number of hurdles. One of them is people wanting to know what to do with violent texts. I mean, that's just a, a question of of perhaps people wanting resolution to to that question. And so, hmm. even the way it's asked ex- expects certain things in terms of what, what an answer would look like or what a response would look like. So, I think helping people calibrate expectations for an issue as complicated and nuanced as violence in the Bible uh, to to help people gauge like what what would a, a response you count as a response to this issue and what should I even be suspicious of and then probably alongside that a lot of people wonder like what approach I take or maybe that I recommend that they should take mm-hmm. and an assumption baked into that question is that there's a method or a key that will unlock this issue. Mm. And and that was like both of those things are are things I wanted to explore in the book. Um, and, and so in the on the method side, in the intro, I laid out I think it was eight different approaches, and I'm drawing from Roger Olson, who who um, let me use his his list and I modified it. But um, I, I suggested that like these different approaches to violence in the Bible each have strengths and limitations, and and knowing what they can do is helpful. But a method doesn't help you on the ground to navigate the richness of the biblical text. Um, it, it might provide some kind of framework and parameters for approaching the question, but once you press into the details, I feel like methods on like hermeneutical methods for addressing this ethical question, you bump up against your limits pretty quickly. And and so so then then the question is like, well what what are you left with if you don't have mm. an approach, say like a a Christ centered reading of the Old Testament that you can use to deal with violence, then what do you have? And and I think what you have is the need to read carefully and slowly through the text and to um, develop a kind of multi-pronged approach to violence in the Bible. And I think the challenge of that is that it requires a kind of patience that culturally we're you know, not well suited for. Hmm. So, I, the, part of the challenge in writing the book was to make that interesting and engaging, and I tried to make uh, pull people in along the way so that it didn't feel like um, all the homework I put into it. But on the other hand, it didn't feel like you're just glossing over some of the 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 rich uh, aspects of of these biblical passages I was engaging. You and I have talked about violence a lot, and you you know my feelings about people over-interpreting violence or mm. people with 
the problem of having little contact with the kind of violence that's being described in Scripture mm -hmm. and then trying to interpret the meaning of the violence in Scripture, what would that be like? It would be like, you know, somebody who has had experience with a fire in their kitchen mm -hmm. trying to be a fireman professionally, yeah. like going, oh, I've, I've yeah. put out a fire in my pan, you know, I can I can right. take that three-story house. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so I think, I think they're part of what I put in the intro is like the need to acknowledge our social location and, and how we're coming to this question. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't invalidate it. So I think, I, I think it's easy to overread the you know, ourselves into the text, but it's also easy to dismiss ourselves as people with legitimate questions by mm -hmm. saying, Oh, we haven't seen this level of violence. And so what can we say? Because some people have seen serious violence and have those same questions, and so mm -hmm. um, I, th I think I think the, the trick is to consider it from all sides. And so, remembering, for instance, that while for us thinking about God's character of judgment or punishment might be the thing we struggle with, for mm -hmm. other people. The idea of God extending and showing mercy to a perpetrator of violence is a real problem. I mean, the whole mm -hmm. book of Jonah is really about that issue. Mm -hmm. And and so, that's what I mean by checking our social location is is thinking like of of the issue from all sides and remembering what we think is one problem is is maybe just good news to someone else. I think the problem with you, you know what's wrong with you, mm. is that you have spent all of this time in kind of the biblical thinking and all mm -hmm. these different, all, all the different texts and the different times they're written in and the ways they discuss, even the language that they use, your, mm. your Oxford, Uni or sorry, yeah, Oxford University Press? Uh, uh, oh, Cambridge. oh, Cambridge, yeah. Yeah, your Cambridge book. Yeah which even goes in deep on just the very language and categories by which they slice up uh, type, various types of violence. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I, you know, you, you bring a lot of uh, tools to the, uh, in a toolbox to this whole discussion mm -hmm. that 99% of the rest of us do not have, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, you're, you're having to bridge several problems at the same time. The problem that a lot of people don't have experience with the kind of violence that's being described in Scripture. A lot mm. of people don't have experience with the cultures and the, the kind of the moral expectations of the people who are writing in Scripture. Um, and a lot of us are in the opulent West, and so we don't, we don't really understand much of anything of the lifestyle of these people. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, um, they have a way of thinking and talking about violence that is not the way we do. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously you have this book, Flood and Fury, that is trying to uh, create bridges for people to cross over and to think about these things alongside the biblical authors and various ways in which they might be working these issues out. Uh, but it does seem to me that that social location is like the number one impediment hmm. uh, to understanding what Scripture is doing and even understanding what Jesus is doing with violence. Mm -hmm. And you, mm -hmm. you note very well, Jesus talks violently mm -hmm. a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah, but that I, was more of a comment than yeah. a question. <laughs> yeah, it's it's basically a, I, I guess a, whether it's the number one issue. I yeah, I guess it I guess it is a huge one. Um, I, I think. Can I give an example yeah, too, just yeah. to, to load your gun here? Is I think if you're like teaching biblical narrative, 
Mm-hmm. You you can basically walk in a room and go, "Hey guys, you know how narrative works. You've watched mm-hmm. movies. You've mm-hmm. read stories. Like let's go let's go with that, right?" Yep. But with violence, yeah. I figure it's almost it feels like almost the exact opposite, where you have to say, "Really set set aside everything you know, yeah. and now yeah. uh, be ready to relearn." Is that accurate? Yeah, I think I think that's fair. I mean, I guess what I'm hesitating over is the fact that some people and and in the kind of North American context, it's going to be more at the domestic level, but people Mm. have experienced serious violence or abuse. And so while it's not the same sort of violence of war, maybe that Mm -hmm. biblical writers are, are familiar with in a way that we're not, um, there's at least a a bridge in that sense, an analogy Mm -hmm. that, that people have encountered and, and can, and are wrestling at the level of, is God that kind of abusive deity that I experienced in you know this church leader, this parent, mm. or whomever? So, so I think I think there are some bridges, but it's also good to acknowledge where maybe we haven't, where we are culturally distant from the Bible. And to let it mess with and challenge our assumptions about this subject mm. of violence. Um, and, and one of the things I think that drives me on in this quest to think through it is that in various ways, biblical and Jewish interpreters throughout history have wrestled with this issue of violence and seen it as something that needs reckoning with, albeit mm-hmm. not in the exact same way that we are now, but, but this is... Um, a subject matter that raised consternation for mm. early interpreters and throughout history, later interpreters um, as well. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't, um, and, and I think letting the Bible have its say is a big part of engaging this discussion well, mm. and and having the kind of confidence that letting the Bible have its say will yield good news ultimately. Not in the interim necessarily, but ultimately, right. good news is is um, a, a kind of approach that I or a stance that I think is helpful. Yeah, and you talk, of course, uh, one of the major subjects about a third of the book is harem uh, warfare. This idea of well, I don't I don't even know how you devoting to the ban was. I think the very yeah. first phrase I was introduced to, and so that's <laughs> the one that sticks in my head. Yeah. Um, but this this style of warfare uh, and that is commanded in um, in Deuteronomy and then is carried out in some way, mm-hmm. and you focus in on and I, I like the way the majority I don't know if you came up with this or not the majority and the minority report mm-hmm. though yeah that there seem to be two different ways of talking about these events where they're to go in and and to kill and to take over yeah. land which both happen. Um, so, you want to explain the difference between the majority and the minority reports? Yeah, I think I got that language um, in conversation with Brad Jerzak, a friend of mine, mm-hmm. and and we, um, I was talking to him about these two. I think I used to call it like the, the, the primary and the secondary mm-hmm. narrative, and he <laughs> came up with better language. Um, but yeah, so there's if you read Joshua, it, you might get whiplash because on the one hand the story is told that the people were successful in their military campaigns and by successful it means they left nothing alive that breathes and all that god had promised 
he brought about. He gave them all the land and they settled the whole land. And so that, that sounds like job done. Done and dusted. Yeah, done and dusted. Exactly. Um, yeah. And then on the other hand, you have all these stories talking about how it was going to be a gradual process. It was slow displacement. Um, there were uh, Canaanites running around all over the place. And even at the end of Joshua, in the end of the book, in his farewell speech, Joshua is like, yeah, much of the land remains unsettled. And, and so, uh, m- much of it remains in Canaanite hands. And he doesn't say that as a failure. He doesn't describe that as a fa- failure on Israel's part. It wasn't due to their disobedience or anything. And he basically says to them, um, be sure not to intermarry with or uh, worship the gods that are among these nations. And so, he, in his farewell speech, Joshua almost seems to envision that, like, they're, I mean, he says, like, God will not continue to displace these nations if you worship their idols. So, so then you get a picture at the end that the conquest was not up to Israel to complete. Really, their job was to avoid idols. Mm-hmm. So you have these two narratives in the book, and part of the question I was wrestling with is, is what do we do with having these kind of interwoven narratives? They're not synoptically... Um, well, we have to read them synoptically, but they're not separated out like the synoptic gospels. Right. Um, it's like a where, where you can just say there's John's version of the conquest yeah. and there's Matthew's version yeah. of the conquest. But in yeah. some ways, that's what we have to deal with, or the interaction of those two throughout the book. It's kind of interesting, but it's challenging. You know, as I was reading your minority majority, like, mm-hmm. and you 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 do this thing with. Uh, Art Phil Long's like the different mm. types of art yeah. uh, and tr- the truthfulness of art, which I thought was really good. Um, <laughs> this is very narcissistic, but mm. I thought, you know, this is kind of me sometimes. <laughs> I swing really big and absolutist in some arguments, like uh, at the front, yeah. you know, like yeah. just like, well, no, that would never ever be the case, and then right. and then I kind of back off the yeah. argument a little bit as people start pointing things. Yeah, out. <laughs> yeah. Um, a friend of mine one time he. He told me I should read this book on comics and how they're by Scott McCloud. It's I think oh, yeah. it's like a classic book on on comic art. And and part of what he describes in the book is that like when you're he, he uses a stick figure or a very simplified human um, drawing to talk about how when you simplify a picture down to its essential elements. Uh, as a kind of caricature, you're not so much uh, eliminating the truth of that picture, but you're honing in on homing in on on Thank like you. the core key elements, right? So yeah. it, it's a it's a way of, and and I think literature works in a similar way rhetorically. What that majority report is doing is highlighting this high call of discipleship of un divided loyalty to Yahweh, of God's utter and complete faithfulness without nuance, uh, utter faithfulness to his promises. Okay, so that can be true, and alongside that can be the messy realities of life. And, And I think the book wants us to take up both of those stories as true and hold them together.
Could you say something similar? I'm just thinking of other spots like of Yahweh worship itself, that they're supposed to be committed to all these festivals, but yeah. maybe the reality is they're not making the, all the pilgrimages or they're yeah. not doing it correctly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or even that you know that you find uh, idols in almost every Hebrew house that they excavate, right? Yeah. And you say like, okay, but and so people say, oh, they weren't monotheists, and you're like, well, maybe they're kind of monotheists, yeah. uh, but not not really well, the kind we yeah. think of. They certainly had an ideal, and, and the, the strange thing is that if you if you read Deuteronomy, you get the impression that if there was even the mention of another god. Mm. On the mouth of any Israel, or if certainly right. if there was if there were idols found, then basically what you should do is is wipe out that family that town entirely, right. and and show them no mercy, right? So it feels very much like ancient Near Eastern law. They yeah, re- so, re- remove the center post of their house and let it collapse upon them. Yeah, so. may every beam be pulled out of your house and right, be right. flayed alive. So, so that's the impression you get from Deuteronomy, and you think like, oh my goodness, like this is a horrific, horrifically violent culture. And then Josh, at the end of Joshua, it's interesting in his farewell speech when he's saying sayonara to the people, he he says to them, oh. Um, be sure to put away the idols that are among you. <laughs> he says it's, it twice. It's after the back and forth because they're like, choose yeah. this day who you're going to serve. And they're like, yeah. we're going to serve Yahweh. And he's yeah. like, no, you can't. <laughs> yeah. And also, like, to get rid of the idols that are among you, the right. Israelites. Right. So Joshua knew that they had idols among them. And he doesn't right. say, now I'm going to send around some troops and we're going to we're going to stab some people's right. families here because you've violated the covenant. So in practice, they and Joshua is portrayed as a Torah observant, like Torah loyal leader. Like that's defining mm-hmm. of his character. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua's life. And and so that's remarkable. How can a people have served the Lord if they had idols among them? And and I think that's where the messy reality of real life hits the ground in Joshua, mm-hmm. where he doesn't say you need to exterminate all these families. And also he says, don't intermix with the idols of the nations around that are remaining among you in the land. He doesn't say at the end of his life, now go exterminate the rest of them. So that suggests to me that the book itself treats to some level, this doesn't resolve everything, but it treats to some level that rhetoric of, of totality and destruction rhetorically. So take it seriously, but not it's, it was taken seriously, but not literally. And I think, yeah, I think that's important. I, I can imagine people then saying like, oh, well, it sounds like you're just trying to say the Bible is just, you know, it's mm-hmm. just this rhetorical device making all of these rhetorical moves. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you can think of some obvious spots, you know, Jesus saying not a single stone of the temple is going to be unturned, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and and we have to think, did he literally mean no, no single stone was going to be left unturned. Yeah, because the retaining wall. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know <laughs> that would. Good luck with that, buddy. Right? Yeah, <laughs> not even not even the Romans could. Uh, yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, how is? Do you have like a continuum for mm-hmm. rhetoric that you think about, or yeah, how you think it, about how we should seriously we should take it in what sense? Yeah, I, th- I think um, sometimes we have to think an- analogously about you know places where where Jesus says. You can't be my disciples unless you hate mm. your father, mother, brother, and sister. So, I mean that 
like that's something Jesus wanted. He he doesn't then rush to say I'm just joking or like <laughs> I don't mean it that way. He Joke let he it. lets the severity of that demand fall upon his audience. And because he wants them to take it seriously. But I don't think he wants them to take it literally. I mean, of course, depending on how you understand the terminology around hate. But l- let's take it as hate in our sense. Like, I don't think Jesus wanted um, his disciples to literally hate their families. But it's a way of expressing the undivided loyalty that he required of his followers. And I think in a similar way, that rhetoric in Deuteronomy about leaving none alive that breathes sits alongside texts where it talks about being utterly and solely devoted to mm-hmm. Lord. In fact, Deuteronomy 7, where the, the harem or total destruction command comes, it comes right after Deuteronomy 6, which is all about, or at least in the beginning there, about total whole person loyalty to Yahweh. I mean, also Deuteronomy six through nine is repetitive. Yeah. Don't think that any of this is by the strength of your hand. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. This is highly anti-meritocratic. Thread yeah, going on there. yeah. And and the end of Joshua even picks up on that and talks about how it wasn't by their sword that they won right. victory yeah. in the land. So it's like, which is really enigmatic because it's yeah. Uh, and the hornet of God is in there from Exodus. Yeah. He makes this weird reappearance and yeah. And I should I should say that like. This rhetorical aspect of of that, you know, that harem command still leaves you with questions, like because there are stories in Joshua, like in Jericho, and then the the camp, military campaigns in ten and eleven, where it does seem to describe the people taking that command literally. Yeah. So you're still left with that issue. So I'm not saying that that Israel never tells a story of the people applying it literally. And that's where I think Mm -hmm. a lot of the challenge comes. But I think framing it initially in those rhetorical terms is is a kind of first step. And certainly Samuel the prophet seems to take it literally uh, with Amalek, right? Yeah, for Samuel 15, yeah. Um, And also, um, David in first uh, Samuel 27 I think it's around hmm. there like, like he commits harem right he goes against the villages and and the Negev and, oh yeah and he, claim, he claims to Achish yeah. his, his yeah. captor that he's actually going against his own brothers yeah, yeah. Um, and but it, but I mean it, it almost has to be literal there hmm. because hmm. the whole purpose of him killing every man and woman <laughs> was so that nobody could snitch on him yeah exactly right? blows cover um, yeah 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 so I think I mean, and, and then I, I do talk about that in the book about like what do we do with Jericho, and and I think there are other tools available for reckoning with it. Mm-hmm. All along the way, we I think we have to ask ourselves like are we are we domesticating something we are uncomfortable with, or are we reading the text well? And so I always want to read along the grain of the text and. You know, bring historical insights where that helps, or cultural insights, but allow some of this stuff to just sit uncomfortably with us, and then work on what we do with that. Yeah, and, and you bring in the archaeology of Jericho uh, in the book, and I always like I always have big questions about the archaeology of Jericho <laughs> because it's it's kind of contingent on 
what mm-hmm. date you think there might have been some kind of exodus, however you think the exodus yeah. happened. Yeah. Um, and then there seemed to be some very highly contested, I will just say that. Some, it's it's very highly contested uh, what you consider yeah. the destruction la- layer, when you consider the destruction layer, mm-hmm. when do you think Hebrews have entered the land. So I wonder if we can uh, – like. It seems like any account of violence in Jericho can't hang its hat on the actual data at this point, right? Yeah, I, I think, I think we'll, what we can say is the best that we know. And this is where, like, there are some approaches that I think are a bit disingenuous in that they either manipulate the, the available data or they... Uh, assume that, for instance, the presence of late bronze material, like late bronze age is when Israel is said to have gone into the land, that the presence of some material from the late bronze age means that it was a fully fledged occupied city. Right. And so the the best we can say in, if you take a, a, a late dating for the Exodus, which is what I, I suggest, and I think is a, a decently Late late is twelve fifty yeah. or around twelve fifty. Yeah, twelve hundred or so. Um, is uh, is that it? Doesn't seem like there was an occupation layer at that time. Um, there, but there is some evidence of material culture from that time period. So it might have been a previously decent size, you know, middle bronze city that was was occupied by a military outpost at that time. And that changes our picture a bit of of what Jericho might have been. And again, this is all contingent, but I'm going with like the best that I think we can reconstruct things. So, um, it, it was likely, I think, um, a smallish uh, city, uh, a town, or outpost. Like think think about like um, a military. Outpost that was guarding the the way up like, to Jerusalem, like right? a rod down in the south. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and so then when we hear language about killing every man, woman, child, and animal, it was it's very likely it wasn't occupied by many women and children, um, and that these are like potentially military uh, folks that are are just guarding this this spot. Again, that's not certain. Um, his story tells us Rahab was there, but the idea that soldiers would have a prostitute is is not the um, it does does not yet tell you if this is a, a normal kind of larger city. So, like thinking through the particulars, I think is is helpful to just imagine like the possibilities and likelihood of what was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think as you as you keep saying in the book, like at the end of the day, that doesn't get you out of the violence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like there is there is some level of violence yeah. orchestrated by God. Um, even if you want to say it was the hornet of God himself that committed the the, mm. the majority of it and the and the humans were just a cleanup crew. It's yeah. uh, it's still something like that going on. So I wonder uh, for people who are gonna say uh, oh, thank God! This is the Old Testament, and we don't have to worry about this kind of stuff mm. uh, anymore because we're in the, we're New Testament Christians, and all of this violence goes away. Um, how would you complicate that narrative the, for the mm. little Marcionites in us? Mm. Yeah, I think I would say that um, I would go back again to the idea that you know these are the stories that shaped 
Jesus's ethic and teaching and life. And, and so, the Hebrew scriptures are Jesus's formative educational environment. And, and whatever we love in Jesus is somehow rooted in these texts and nourished his imagination as a teacher and prophet and um, rabbi in Israel. So, so I think we, we can't set these two against each other. Also, there's, there's a fair dose of violence in the New Testament. So, whether you take it rhetorically or literally, the language about hellfire um, is, you know, ain't so <laughs> a peaceful. It's, it right? seems intentionally um, violent. Yeah. yeah. And, Just, uh, it's intentionally you know, scary, at stuff, least. And, and Jesus had some hard words of judgment, and, and perhaps rightfully so, about millstones around necks and, um, mm-hmm. and, and the destruction of Jerusalem. He, he seems to have, uh, you know, Jesus, I, I think he prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem. And if you look at that event, that was, and you read Josephus, that was extremely. That's as about as gnarly as it so, gets, as far as wide scale violence. I, yeah, so I, I don't, I don't want to swing to the other extreme and, and be like, ah, Jesus is actually pretty violent. Um, but I, but I, because I think that needs reflection and thought too. But it does at least complicate that trajectory from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And this gets back at those method questions, because one method is to say that a progressive revelation, that as we get on in Scripture, we get a clearer picture, a fuller picture of who God is. And I think that's true to some extent, so it's a helpful way of thinking. But on the other hand, if you expect a kind of movement from violence to peace, I think right. you're in for disappointment. Um, but Similarly, you're in for a surprise if you read the Old Testament carefully regarding the vision of peace that's there and of God's mercy and, and, and grace and forgiveness. Yeah, it's, it has struck me several times when I think, probably when I'm reading your books, that, that Jesus does not say, when he talks about the eschaton, the end of mm-hmm. uh, his return, he does not say, as it was in the days of Jericho. Yeah. So it will be in the days of the coming of Son of yeah. Man. Which, if if Jericho was like the paradigmatic uh, doing horrible, you know, doing horrible things, and again, that's mm-hmm. a whole other question for me. Like, what what is it that Jericho deserved exactly, or, or I, or any of the other ones? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's not the it's not the paradigm for God's judgment. Mm-hmm. You have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting point. Um, I think that comes from the fact that in the book of Joshua, it's not the wickedness of those places that's really featured. At least in the book of Joshua, that comes, it does come out elsewhere in Deuteronomy and and whatnot. But um, whereas in in Genesis, the flood story, it does foreground human wickedness and particularly violence as the precipitating cause of the flood. Mm-hmm. And so that that might be why. Um, yeah, I haven't thought, I don't have any more thoughts on that. It, it, it's just odd that it's a very mm-hmm. clear connect. The flood, you know, it's flood and fury is the name of your book, right? The yeah, flood. Yeah. It's very clear. Mm-hmm. Whatever it was, it was their wickedness and the violence that, as you say, ruined the ground. Yeah. Um, 
And in Sodom, you get a very clear picture of exactly what kind of violence yeah. people are perpetrating yeah. that ruins the city and mm-hmm. you know makes them uh, destroyable, I guess. Um, but then with Jericho and I and Hutzor and like it's you just yeah. don't know. You ha- kind of have to import ideas from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Right. Yeah, and and I think part of the challenge for Joshua is that it doesn't describe what's happening there as violence, you know, perpetrated by Israel. So that's mm. our interpretation of that, and I think it's fair. Mm-hmm. But we just have to recognize that we were operating with a lens that the writers probably didn't have uh, or didn't use to think about what that conquest was. And I think maybe that's in part because of the justice of what was what they saw, but even that doesn't come into the picture. I think I think it's um yeah, I think I think the book was doing something else in, in how it's telling that story. Uh, and 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 really like when you get to the end of the book, what it's worried about is the ongoing presence of idolatry within Israel. Mm-hmm. And and lurking around them in some ways too, their neighbors and within them, and and one of the things I bring out in the book is that, like, in many ways Joshua is not about the the evil other that lurks out there. That's not the primary thing because the people as they go into the land, it ter- turns out in chapter five they're uncircumcised, mm-hmm. um, and. At the end of the book, they're idolatrous, and so you get this picture of Israel of uncircumcised idolatrous people who need to clean up matters within as much as they do deal with external mm-hmm. threats. And I think that's the kind of thing where, like, it, the a, the church should ask questions as they read Joshua about like the way they're framing the dangers to the church, um, hmm. uh, like to what to the extent that we situate all threats and dangers out there, we're probably not doing enough self-examination. I think Joshua really challenges that in so many ways, um, whether it be like defining who's in and who's out by juxtaposing Rahab and, and Achan, or calling Israel to deal with all those problems within their community. And so there, there's this other weird form of, I, I don't know if you can even call it violence, but it's a problem mm-hmm. uh, of intermarriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and the irony of that is people are intermarrying throughout you know, Israel's history. Their greatest heroes are intermarrying mm-hmm. with people mm-hmm. from other generations. So what do you, what do you yeah. think is the, the most problematic aspect? Or what it, maybe even what do they mean by intermarriage? Because yeah. the, they're going to go on to describe people who get intermarried, yeah. and it's not a problem. They're not getting their hair pulled out and beat yeah. by Nehemiah. And out, there's right? even a rabbinic tradition that Joshua marries Rahab. Um, so, <laughs> so, so I think, but I think that tradition, which you know doesn't come from the book of Joshua, highlights right. the reality that Israel recognized a legitimate place for intermarriage with non-Israelites, even right. Canaanites. Um, and so it's not just about the ethnicity of who's married, or I should say it's not about the ethnicity of who's married. Uh, instead, it's about covenant fidelity most fundamentally. And so there's a whole book in the Bible about this, namely the book of Ruth, where mm-hmm. Ruth is a Moabite, according to Deuteronomy 23, uh, technically excluded from the community. But I think the law was never meant to be ruthlessly <laughs> <Ooh>. applied. 
<laughs> I just thought of that as I was saying it. <laughs> that was terrible. Um, anyway, yeah, uh, it, it wasn't meant to be ruthlessly applied. There's a place for Ruth at at the table, uh, and it's on the basis of of covenant embrace. And so Rahab, Rahab is situated at the beginning of Joshua, I think, to as a as a legal question for the readers to think mm-hmm. through. And and she's not an exception that they had to consider. She's actually like closer to the heart of what they need to think about. And yeah. if you work through the law, the the, the foreigner inclusion yeah. is not just one spot. It's exactly. happening all over the place. Yeah. And, and so I think that the Bible is constantly training us to think in terms of what's primary, what's secondary, and how to relate those things. Mm. Um, you know, classic example of like if your ox falls in the ditch on the Sabbath, like should you get it out, right? To so preserving life is is justified on the on the Sabbath because that has a primacy. And yeah. you know, Jesus Jesus talks about uh, mercy being more fundamental than sacrifice, not because sacrifice didn't matter, right. but because he he reads along the grain of the Old Testament where they were able to um, uh, prioritize certain things over others. So, so Rahab is a story that I think is is challenging readers to think through the primacy of welcoming the Canaanite who embraces Yahweh over any command that would say she should be eliminated. Hmm. So yeah, that's good. Yeah. And I, if, like, if you could just thought experiment, if Ruth was a, a devoted worshiper of Kamosh or Molech, yeah, I don't, I don't, we'd say yeah, it'd be a no go, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think so. So it's not just as simple as are foreigners included or excluded. There are other issues at play, and I, I think yeah. Isaiah fifty six really gets at this. With, oh yeah, with um, the eunuch and the foreigner, they're included as covenant keepers. And people who are embracing the covenant, and so their foreignness or their uniqueness <laughs> doesn't take priority over their embrace of Torah. And in yeah. fact, it's a faithful enactment of Torah. And that's, that's not a unique way of looking at it either. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. That was now, meant to be a pun. Oh, unique! Got it. Yeah, ruthless and unique. Yeah, I think it's. I think because. You know, one way to read those texts like Ruth or Isaiah 56 is to see them subverting the law. And hmm. and I don't, or yeah. or Joshua 2, I think we like subversive stories and we like, um, we like a prophet who's edgy. We like stories that are edgy, but I actually think they're, they're reading Torah faithfully and right. showing that that this this is the way these laws are meant to be held together. Hmm. I think the most controversial thing I say when I in, in front of a group of Christians that, that I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, when mm-hmm. I'm just speaking to somebody, is I'll often point out like that not all of Scripture is primary. Like it's not yeah. equally primary, right? Yeah. Like some parts take primacy over other parts, yeah. and you can see people like looking up in their head doing the Rolodex, like, wait, is that true? And, yeah. you know, and they just never really thought about, even within the law, there, there is primacy. Yeah, it sounds like right. another manifestation of the idea that all sin is equal. Yeah, it's like, exactly. No, um, murdering is is worse than than speaking a word in, right. in uh, 
you know, I don't know, like breaking a, a, a vow even, right? Like a small vow. Not something. if you're just trying to get your soul into heaven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, but I think, I guess the, yeah, the flat reading of the text, like l- you're missing the, the cues that the Bible's giving us to, to help us navigate its own rocky terrain. Yeah. Well, that's a good way to put it. Well, Dr. Matthew Lynch, thank you for this book, Flood and Fury, Old Testament Violence and the Shalom of God. We didn't even get to the shalom part, but it, I, I, I predict that it will win a book cover award because it's got a beautiful it, book cover. The, yeah, the, the designers did a great job, as did the yeah. editors helping with and, the book. And the content ain't bad either. So. <laughs> yeah, remains to be seen. Yeah, All right, thank for, you, Matt, okay. for your time and your wisdom here. Happy to do it. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.